0: Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. All right, everyone. Uh, you, You twisted our ghoulish arms long enough. Today we're talking about the bleakest, most gothic, toughest anime in the world, The Rose of Versailles. We're, ta- we're talking about <laughs> sad trans-mask uh, boys in love with Marie Antoinette. It's going to be a beautiful and emotionally difficult episode, which is what I would be saying if this was Anime Vanguard, the show that we're not. Uh uh okay so I guess that screws over the
1: idea of doing the Berserk episode anytime soon. Fine. With,
0: <laughs> s- secretly the Berserk episode and the Rose of Versailles episode or uh, the Rose of Versailles episode are going to be the same episode. Also it's going to be a Yutena episode. We're doing like all of it. We we we're, we're going there. There's nothing nothing's more nothing's more souls like than being queer is the lesson of all of these animes. <laughs> Oh um, good good morning, dear listeners. My name is Ash. You hopefully may you might be know this might be your first episode. You might not know that yet. You might not know that we're a couple jokesters. I'm joined as always by John, aka at the Lit Creek Guy. How's it going, John? I am you know what I'm very good. I, I
1: sent a letter to a distant relation of mine uh, mm-hmm. to see if I could spend the holidays with them. Um they're super keen for me to go. Um <laughs> But I keep being followed <laughs> everywhere by a weird cat, so
0: I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's weird you know, you know. It's a weird time of year. It's a weird time of year. It's the the holiday. The holidays are tough, you know. You know, like it's 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 right after right after the Christmas season. We're all a little strapped for cash. But if you want to get your distant relative a good gift, I know a guy who sells watermelons out of a hut who can really hook you up. <laughs> We will. We will get to the watermelons. We will get to the watermelon guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Toxic Avenger episode we did, where the whole time I'm just like, I just want to talk about the damn mop. <laughs> Except for now, it's a watermelon. Uh, we're talking about. We're talking about.
1: We're talking about maybe it's a it's a common theme in horror movies, right? We're talking about a, a house, uh, but we're not just talking about any house. We are talking about. House from 1977, um, maybe may, uh, it's sort of a cult classic. You know, I think that's a kind of lazy descriptor sometimes, but I think this is it's fair enough to call it that. Um, and Ash, you know, I, people probably are w- ready for another film, another another discourse about haunted homes. So, can you tell me what is House from 1977? about. Are you sure there are only seven people in this house? Positive. Except for the ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts.
0: In considering Hausu and its use of the haunted house, it occurred to me that the only way to convert the historic and experiential meaning of a house was to look at it through the lens of a permanent and intractable haunting. There is no such thing as a house. There is only the process of becoming a home. The linguistic mutilations of housing and the housing market are capitalist, re-territorializations of an essential facet of human existence. We must have homes in order to create community. In the absence of homes, we can only create hauntings. There is no such thing as a house. There are only our bones. If Mark Fisher's The Weird and the Eerie defines the ghastly manifestations of capitalism as that which is present and should not be, or that which is not present but should be, we can look for that which is present and should be as a functional barometer for the pair weird. Housing is not a home. The home has a present presence that functions as a stable hub for the growing of mycorrhizal networks of community. It is a space where the eerie hauntings of ghosts can grow to become familiar spirits. We can say that housing is a human right, but that only reforms a capitalistic phrasing to express a deeper truth. To have a home is to be human. To the extent that we are denied homes, we are denied our humanity. There is no such thing as a house. There are only the hauntings that are ourselves and the spirits that are each other. Every facet of capitalist housing is designed to reduce the human experience to the status of a pre-dead haunting. The next time you move into a new apartment, look for the signs of the dead that haunted the home before you. From the eerie presence of furniture that is no longer where it should be, to marks on the walls signaling the present absence of now-departed pictures, the psychic residue of, of the hauntings of your home will be readily apparent. When you go to drive a nail into the wall, know that you are adding to this process of haunting. You are becoming the dead that will linger in a year or two when a new tenant moves in. The process of living a life in this world, at its least and at its most, is communion with the dead. The constant re of the capitalist housing market effaces the psychogeographic landscape of homes, and evicts those least able to pay rent, the dead that hold up our shared history. Explore the pair-weird home with us as we discuss Nobuhiko Obayashi's 1977 film, Hausu. Yes, there we go. Pew, pew, pew. Uh,
1: yeah, you know, Gatung's version, right? The species being, mm-hmm. um, we are all in the economy of the dead, as uh, as John Berger put it. Um, where would you like to begin, my friend?
0: Well, I think I think uh, we should uh, follow follow the guidance of the strange watermelon selling watermelon selling man and go into the formalism zone. The, the formalism, formalism zone,
1: zone, zone, zone. Yes, do, let us do, let do. us do it. This is. Uh I love this movie. It's it is uh but at the same time I'm not sure whether I would call it good uh, or whether uh, <laughs> it's it is it is extremely yeah. it's extremely interesting on a formal level and it's interesting for interesting reasons. Um but I don't know whether I would go this is a this is a good complete formally cohesive thing but that's precisely why it's worth talking about right but but there are there are moments in this film that i really really love i love them so much uh there's one genuinely perfect visual gag that i that i have to talk about um which is where they all get they all get off the bus after uh, going on this journey to the house um and they they've got this kind of gorgeous painted backdrop because it's clearly not not this is clearly not filmed on location and then we so that's our setup and then we cut in for the close-up shot and they've just left the cut the painted on backdrop but now it is on location it's an amazing joke it's an amazing visual gag because they just keep it there (laughs) and i love i love any film that deliberately calls attention to its own artifice like to to the to its
0: own constructedness. I I think you're absolutely right. The the kind of the vi- language of visual comedy in this is so effective, and it has this kind of like it has this slapstick quality that reminds me a lot of uh, Top Secret. Uh, I'm sorry, Spy Hard, uh, Airplane. The, the the visual language of humor is so effective in this film. Yeah, it's it's slapstick. Right. That's what Peter Jackson. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what Peter
1: Jackson used to talk about. Right. This idea of like, it's scary, but like we
0: we have said before many times about the kind of very close line between horror and comedy. Oh, ab- absolutely. And I think even on the most basic level, like, you know, I believe we talked about this in a previous episode, but there's this kind of libidinal triangle between horror, comedy and pornography. And, and the, these three kind of visual visual languages, these three cinematic languages are all attempting to rise tension in the body and then and then force force a release somewhere. Horror wants to scare you. Comedy wants you to burst into laughter. Pornography has its own goals and ends. And like I, I find I find the kind of overlap of horror and comedy to just be like such a natural combination
1: absolutely absolutely but uh, again it's it's all done in this way of like the it's a film that's constantly reassuring you that you're watching a movie and right because that that uh creates this kind of like participatory anthropology of viewership right this uh participatory model of spectatorship where you are no longer just the kind of passive voyeur but you enter into this kind of hermene- hermeneutic space in which to make sense of what you're seeing you have to understand the kind of the rules of the game that the film itself lays out to you right this is this is a film that Mm -hmm. that is not trying to tell you a true story this is a film that is very very concerned with you
0: being aware you're watching a movie this is even when um obayashi was filming this like so many of the effects that they set up like everybody on set was just like maybe this will work when we go to edit it who knows let's just do it
1: yeah and, like and all, all the chroma key stuff all the stop motion yep. stuff all the like v- deeply weird and in, in many ways very beautiful animation like the risk there's a kind of like game that's being played where you go eh, maybe maybe this might i don't know <laughs> <laughs>
0: <clears throat> and even like you know, even, even so uh, Obiashi pitches this movie and then for years the studio executives at Toho are like no of course not and then eventually they they, they reach a point where and this happens in a lot of film industries where the studios can't make money on the, the old hat the, the reliable cash ins that they've had for years and so now they have to let someone new take a shot at something that they would never let get made otherwise and it winds and it's almost always those movies are are watershed moments of cinema and they often line up with horror too absolutely absolutely um
1: i guess i guess the question is how do we deal with a film which on the formal level resists its own kind of mimesis it it, it is constantly throwing back in your face that what you're watching is a kind of spectacle so how do you how do you deal with that what what do you How do we kind of read that
0: as as critics? So a lot of times when people talk about uh, Nobuhiku Obayashi, they they talk about him as a guy who made advertisements and commercials and then kind of used those techniques to make a horror movie. But that also misses the fact that he was an experimental filmmaker on top of that. Like like Haosu is his wheelhouse. You know, like the commercials were the day job, and like, or at least that's the sensation that I get. Like when you watch Emotion, his his other movie, and I, I think approaching this as we with kind of like the same the same eye that I would approach like Tchaikovsky's Outer Space or like like um, Reflections of It. Oh, oh my god, the bleh, God today, my brain. <laughs> um, but like approaching this as an experimental piece of cinema that's also horror, that's also comedy. I think helps to acknowledge that there's going to be so many disparate pieces that resist you forcing them together. Yes, absolutely. Um I
1: I I think I think this raises the question of like what is experimental film for? Right? What is what is like so a kind of straightforward narrative film is trying to convince us of the truth of what we're seeing, right? Or at least if not the truth, then at least the kind of reliability of what we're seeing that we are in some way being shown a kind of like a recognizable world that is like our own or has kind of rules that we can kind of like put ourselves into um i i can't help but think of someone like uh, something like zigavertov's man with a movie camera right this idea oh, yeah. of like what is it what is it again this is like the foundational philosophical question of cinema which is like what does it mean to look at something through a camera and if you if you consider if you consider that a camera a kind of like, uh, uh, you know, less spectacular and in some ways cruder, non biomechanical version of the eye, what does it mean to look? Right, and I think here the entire point is to alienate ourselves away from a sincere engagement with the kind of truth of the text. Mm-hmm. and to force us to engage with the text on the level of its formal construction.
0: I completely agree with that. One of the most powerful qualities of cinema that's openly experimental is that it wants you to see the artifice of cinema. It, or better, better, even more than desiring it, it forces you to see the fact that this is something constructed, this is a movie, technologies were used to make this and decisions were made in terms of what is depicted and how it is depicted. And it really forces those issues to the foreground, almost in front of the text of the movie itself. Yeah. Abso- it, absolutely. I think w- with experimental cinema too, there's also something incredibly playful that even the most grim experimental movies like begotten or the act of seeing with one's own eyes there, there's nevertheless something darkly playful about them, you know, like, there, there, there's something about the magic circle where it's like, you know, like in, in game studies, the Heisinger's magic circle, right? You step into the circle to, to accept the play space because the rules of games don't matter anywhere else. The rules of monopoly have no bearing on, on life. It's arbitrarily selected when you step in the magic circle of the game. And with experimental cinema, like they're almost like, hey, look at this magic circle I just drew on the ground. Please step into it. And there's something so kind of whimsical about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like you can't you can't help but like go oh it's a game right really this is like the the contingency of of the effects for example is not it's not a comment on oh is the film gonna be any good it's a comment on the contingency of trying to make films in the first
0: place this movie this movie really calls into question what is a good film to begin with experimental cinema is so effective for throwing away all of these trite and tired little conventions for what makes a movie like quote unquote good or quote unquote watchable. Yeah, You know, like do you, do you want, what does it mean for an effect to be good in quotes? Is it, is it just, is it just tired verisimilitude that you're after? Or is there something more to effects being good that we can kind of tease out?
1: Yeah, exactly. And w- what are the implications of this, right? Uh, what does it? What's the? What is the effect of this uh, filmic deconstructionism? And I think what it does is it raises the question of like psychedelia, right? What what is, what are you what are you trying to get actually before we get to that there's another there's a kind of like a counterpoint because we've been talking about this in like super elevated terms, but <laughs> but this movie is made by an ad guy. Yeah. Right? He's he he said that he that he shot like maybe two thousand commercials. I looked mm-hmm. I looked up some of his commercials, they're so weird. Yeah. They're these like what and the whole point of advertising is to use all of the techniques of cinema to achieve a particular end, right? It's not to tell a good story or a true story or do a kind of like representational fidelity. It's to create, direct, and invest
0: desire. Oh, absolutely. And and I, I think maybe owing to all of his work in commercials, there's something so openly libidinal about this. You know, like, and I often reflect on that, like a lot of other filmmakers that we see as being like the pinnacle of talent and craft and all of these formal qualities have also done a lot of commercials. David Lynch has done a fair number of commercials. You know, and that's David Lynch. Rob Zombie did a commercial. Like a lot of directors also just do commercials. You know, like sometimes you got to cash a check. Sometimes a commercial is just fun to do. Who knows? There's plenty of reasons. And like, I, I think it helps open up to that libidinal quality a little bit. Like, like, you know, the commercial is all about manufacturing and synthesizing and directing desire. And like, if, if, if we're to look at this through, through kind of like advertisement as cinema, like if, if David Lynch is kind of the Trent Reznor, the nine inch nails of, of the experimental in horror, then, um, Nobuhiku Obayashi is like what, like Charlie XCX or something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I, I,
1: I guess. <laughs> uh, what, what an analogy! But like, there's so much of this film which is using exactly the language of advertising right we have like slow-mos slo- on our main characters we have like weird zoom close-ups on like uh things that they're holding or things that they're doing we have like characters reacting to other characters in a cutaway to the camera like it's yep like sh- so much of this is shot like a commercial i and- know that that's that's incredibly true yeah and so this is this is where we come together in this kind of like bigger point, which is this combination of like quote unquote experimental cinema and the cinematic language of advertising and mass culture. And this is what gives us the question of psychedelia. I I just wanted to know your thoughts on this as like filmic
0: psychedelia. We we've entered into a cultural point where like visual psychedelic language has been largely recaptured by capital. You know, like uh, uh, Doctor Strange movies uh, are a good example of this. Uh, Joe Rogan is a good example of this. Yeah. Uh, Tech CEOs. Did you ever do, uh, have you ever done DMT? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Let's, let's talk about DMT. Have you ever, have you ever done DMT while watching House? (laughs) (laughs) But like, like Joe, Joe Rogan's a good example. Tech, tech CEOs going on like ayahuasca retreats. Like... There are there are so many good examples of like what, you know, just decades ago would have been like unthinkably radical, you know, like a the, the most popular broadcast personality in the country regularly talking about doing research grade psychedelics. Like what the, the 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 current robber barons of our era, all all being relatively open about microdosing schedule one substances. Uh, what But it's 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 safe now. It's it's totally been it's been entirely digested and reabsorbed. And now capitalism is like, oh, well, these things are fine and good as long as you're doing them to work better. Um, And I think that house in a a way plays against it because these these are psychedelic visuals that don't fit that kind of hippie Beatles Paisley vibe. Right. And they also Mm -hmm. this also clearly doesn't fit the current tech bro aesthetic either. It's it's taking a different stream to move through this, and the whole point, or one of the points rather, of psychedelic more broadly, um, thus psychedelic and psychedelia more broadly, is that it can it can not only suppress our default ways of looking at the world, but it jars us out of it. You know, it forces new ways of seeing, right? And and this movie does that on both the level of the text as well as like the weird formal decisions that were made in its production. There's another weird element of its production that we have to talk about. And I cannot wait to see
1: how we join what you just said, which I thought was like super true and really interesting, <laughs> to what we're about to talk about, which is that the production company wanted an answer to another film. They wanted they wanted a uh, a Japanese version of the film Jaws, and I, and this is what they got. <laughs> this, this, this is what they got, and I am, I am so curious to know how you think this and Jaws are in some way in conversation.
0: So I think that the psychedelia point ties in nicely with Jaws in, in a sense that most, most psychedelics are, broadly speaking, kind of harmless. Alcohol is more dangerous than, than most psychedelic substances, right? Like just on a biological and chemical level. Uh, sharks are also essentially harmless for humans. We, we happen to be land-dwelling mammals, and they live in the ocean. There's, there's really not a lot of conflict there. Um jaws jaws fundamentally reinvented that landscape for sharks. It took sharks as something that can be dangerous in certain oceanic conditions that can be easily mitigated thanks to our our highly scientific human mind um and turned them into like the number one fearsome killer of nature. You know, this this unthinking, unloving machine of blood and bone and murder like And I I think that the the process there is relatively interesting because how many decades before House Shark, the the spoof parody film comes out, is House trying to do that with the kind of concept of the home to begin with, to take it from something that's kind of benign and naturalized and to turn it into something that will devour you in a lake of blood? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um,
1: And I think. I think what's interesting is that Jaws, in its own way, is very much like if psychedelia is anything, it's about the revelation of the unconscious, right? It's of the of yeah. of thought beneath conscious thought, um, uh, which in in another in a kind of if you twist that slightly, what it is is the revelation of of ideology of ideology. Um, in the in the in the dream image, you see the potential utopian future yearning, even if it's filtered through various layers of, like, historical material conditioning. Um Like, what is Jaws if not, like, a utopia that gets abandoned by the interference of, like, an almost divine supernatural force, right? The utopia being beach in the summertime. But what you get in Jaws is you actually do get the revelation of American political ideology in full force in the t- in, in the figure of, like, the mayor. Like... yep. Mm -hmm. I absolutely think these two films are in conversation and they're very weird that the very weirdness of that conversation is
0: illuminating. And Jaws, Jaws is also another film that is very upfront about its relationship to the formal qualities of cinema, like the dolly zoom in Jaws, one of the most famous cinematic shots ever created you know like like jaws is very and like not to mention the 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 cutting edge special effects work that went into that movie yeah like jaws is jaws is also another film that's very open about it but it's instead of taking an experimental route it's it's kind of going going for the going for the throne of the first blockbuster
1: this is a this is a good place to wrap up our formal exploration and delve into the strange mattress cupboard of film discourse (laughs) where sentient demon-possessed
0: mattresses will flop on top of us. Well, did you say the word mattress? Because that makes me think of today's sponsor. And that's you, dear listener. You're the sponsor of today's show. Not some horrible mattress baron selling their terrible product to whatever podcast will do an ad read, but you, you who support everything that we do here, And you can support us at horrorvanguard.com and patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. Thank you for keeping the show about as mattress-free as we can get until we ultimately talk about deathbed. Uh, The bed that kills. uh, Amazing. Amazing. That's maybe one of my favorite.
1: (laughs) Uh, Hey, uh, Dollar Shave Club, HelloFresh, anyone else
0: who sponsors podcasts, (laughs) where you at? We don't need you. Yeah, yeah, Man- Manscaped, do you want me to do an ad read where I critique your weird gendered advertising decisions? Uh, uh, call me. Or don't. <laughs> or how about just give me money and I won't talk about your product? How about that? Uh, uh Yeah, a great. Honestly, I, I think maybe my favorite Patreon blog we've ever done. Uh, please, do, oh. do, do keep the show going. <laughs> oh, really quickly, did, did I tell you that when I was a young boy my father took me into the city oh, yeah. to see a marching band. Oh, yeah. yeah. What what did he say to you? What did he say to you?
1: <laughs> Seems like
0: quite an important moment. Was there anything that was said that stuck with you? Uh, he, he said, don't become a podcaster. I, I don't know really what he meant by that. <laughs> but we should... Okay, so we need to talk. Uh, we're going to start the discourse zone by talking about My Chemical Romance's Welcome to the Black Parade. Mm-hmm. Um, so if... Uh, if you listen to the auditory experience that is House, you'll notice that a certain piano melody, a refrain that keeps uh, appearing through the uh, through the course of the film, is almost identical to the piano riff in "Welcome to the Black Parade." And I-, I could find no evidence that directly connects the two. Although I did find a bunch of mashups and remixes where the two were combined. But I, I find that to be like, I honestly barely know what to make of that. That is such an interesting, like, even if it is just, just nothing, nothing more than coincidence, which happens enough in art, right? You hear a melody and then you forget where it came from and then you reproduce something very similar, you know? Yeah. 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 It is, it is the nature of art to be eternally remixed, even if that remix is unconscious.
1: Um, But I don't know whether it is. I think you've spotted something. I think you've spotted something. Um, And I think the only thing that... uh, I I think the only only thing that we can say is like, uh, Ray and Mikey, uh, I know that you listen to the show. Can you run this by Jared and find out? Because the people need to know... Uh (laughs) Firstly, why only two of the four members of My Chemical Romance listen to Horror Vanguard? And second, secondly, <laughs> secondly,
0: have we spotted something here? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Call us. Uh, that would be great. And you know what? You know, even even we'll we'll open for you one day too. You know, podcasts opening for rock bands is something that up to two people have been talking about for as long as a few months now. And we think that My Chemical Romance would be the uh, a good tour partner for Horror Vanguard. So you know, like have your have your people DM our people, and we'll we'll hash out the details and the ticket pricing split. This is that's our plan for 2023. Is to, that's our plan? Our plan for 2023 is to open for a band. We, an amazing stage show too they're gonna like lower us down from the rafters yep. as 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 we're doing the intro to the show yeah
1: yeah it's gonna it's it's gonna be great it's gonna be it's gonna be like surprisingly sexy um oh yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i i'm a little bit worried because you know the last time we did this i had that thing with the pyrotechnics um
0: <laughs> most of the hair grew back but let's not do that again that's good that's good that's good We'll we'll, we'll have to. We, we need to we'll, we'll have we'll have my email the guy who does rammstein's pyrotechnics I, they, they seem to be pretty on point with safety um should we talk about haunting should we do- <laughs> yeah should we should go back to what we do yeah. Yeah.
1: Should, should we do that should we talk about this horror movie instead of
0: how one day we're gonna open for my chemical romance I mean, it's fun to dream, isn't it? In the spirit of Haosu, it is fun to dream. We uh, we, we get to manifest. We're manifesting, manifesting. <laughs> um, hashtag Twitter, do your thing. But like, what I find to be really interesting about the haunting in this movie is that all of the young girls, right? Kung Fu fantasy, all of all of their friends. They're they're really like. This reminds me of the kind of like classic children's TV formulae, you know, like, you know, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? You've got the leader, you've got the cool one, you've got the hothead, you've got the science guy. None of them are complete personalities unto themselves. They're all representatives of this kind of fractured entirety. And, and there's something going on here that's very similar to this. Like, you know, what, what is the mind if not a haunted house? What are the ghosts if not the parts of us we try not to recognize?
1: Well really this will makes a lot more sense uh because uh, Obayashi basically wrote this with his 12-year-old daughter right, right. <laughs> like yes yes uh this is cuz so much of this so much of this is taken directly from like very common childhood fears um like the cupboard in the dark household appliances and household objects having a kind of life and agency of their own. Because the house is the first point in which we come to subjective awareness. The home is where we we come into this idea of ourselves as agential objects. You know, Freud has the famous story about the boy who would throw the ball and would one day realize Mm -hmm. that the ball could, like someone could throw the ball back to him. Yeah. Uh, So like that's where we come into our capacity as agents, but it's also the point in which we recognize the agency of other people. And the kind of correlate of that is our own relative limitation of agency, right? You're a child, you realize like things can be done to you which don't, it's like, what does every eight-year-old said? It's so unfair, right? The world is full of bigger people than I am and my own limited agency consistently runs up against them. And what's what's so terrifying is something acting when you believed it could not
0: that that I think is so incredibly important for the context of of Hausu, right? Like locating agency within this and then using that as kind of a lens to identify sources of fear, you know, and, and the the kind of like the things that which are frightening in Hausu are so often exactly as, as as you were saying, things that are all of a sudden expressing their own agency back against us. Yeah. As well as those horrifying moments where we come to terms with the fact that we need to also express our agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: And really, this is there's a kind of bigger, bigger, um, uh, bigger kind of theme here with uh, Gorgeous and her father, right? Or Gorgeous and her father, and like the new mother figure, because in lots of ways, this is a film about the relationship between mothers and daughters yeah uh you know there's there's vi- very absent fathers in this there is there are no men for reasons that we'll get into um <laughs> but what do you think of that what do you think about this as like a, a as like a film about
0: kind of matrilineal relationships I, I think that is a really interesting way to explore the context of this film especially in in the setting of the house Right. Especially with all of these, the domestic space being the thing that is the vehicle for this kind of mutilation and death and and self-consumption. I I also think it's really interesting that like this is a very, this is Freud's number one pick for movie of 1977 is House. Like there's some very clear complex stuff going on here. There's very clear misplaced desires just strewn about all over the place. That kind of tense transition as, as the child reaches you know like the early stages of maturity and first begins to like you know like go beyond just identifying themselves against the parents.
1: Yeah, I mean it's like a psychedelic Anne Radcliffe
0: right <laughs> This is
1: like yes. it's like uh, the home is the domestic space right That's long been the area in which uh, uh, women were confined. The uh, we can talk a lot here about the uh, manipulation and exploitation of uh, uh, domestic labor, uh, but like this is this is in a way like a very classic gothic
0: story. Oh, oh, it absolutely! Especially when, once we look at like the the presence of cats, the use of fire, like this is one hundred percent a classic gothic like archetype. The way this text functions, the house is a site of imprisonment. Like, oh, it just it works so well. Um
1: Well should we let's talk about let's talk about Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Cats.
0: <laughs> What's Well much much like the recent a- uh filmic adaptation of Cats, the cat in Hausu is also very uncanny. <laughs> very uncanny and uh doesn't have a butthole <laughs> <laughs> oh dear what is we live in a weird world uh, but let's, it's a sick sad world john
1: let's what what do you think about blanche here uh obviously uh a streetcar named desire is the obvious connotation <laughs> uh yeah what do we think about the use of cats in horror film cats are almost inherently superstitious right they they're 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 not the they're not the loyal creature that the dog is in terms of like animals in mm-hmm. the domestic sphere. Cats don't do anything. They're not productive. They're not like a horse. They're not like cows. So like cats are almost inherently, uh, not 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 inherently hostile, but inherently kind of like antagonistic in their relationship to humans. Like
0: cats don't necessarily need you. So I think I think an interesting way to approach this approach this is through um, uh, uh, through Kropotkin right like mutual aid a factor of evolution. You know one way to approach this issue is what is kind of the mutual aid factor that initially caused cats and humans to start cohabitating. It's that humans are messy as hell and rats love that, but unfortunately we don't like rats so much for health reasons. Uh, At least large quantities of rats. A few rats here or there can be very fun and entertaining pets. But like, you know, then, oh, look, look, this this tiny little apex predator rolls up that happens to love killing the thing that annoys us and doesn't do us any harm along the way. Perfect. A 10 out of 10 relationship. Like if you if you look into the domestication of cats, like humans have like independently domesticated cats several times in our history like even even if we stop doing it or've never done it before these 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 little these little feline's are just like perfect for us but I, I think something that's really interesting is that the the relationship with cats is much more anarchistic right the cat is not subordinated to the human it, it is it is a it is freely associated with us if your cat is annoyed with you it will claw you it will give you a bite it will go run away and hide under something you know like a cat can run outdoors and never come home and and live. You know, it might be a more painful and uncomfortable life, but it can survive in ways that like, you know, if if your your tiny little toy dog runs away and goes outside, it's getting killed by a raccoon in a fortnight. You know, like like those things are not built to survive in the way that cats are. And so I think that there's cats are on a more level playing field with us in a certain respect. You know, you have to give part of yourself back over to the cat. If you want to, you know, cohabitate with one, you can't just dictate everything about its existence. You know, it's it's very hard to go like, go sit in your kennel to a cat. <laughs> yeah, because, it, it, like I say,
1: cats, yeah, uh, cats are not subservient. That's the word I was looking for. Yep.
0: Cats are not subservient. And if anything, quite the opposite. <laughs> you know, they think... How many, how many times have we worshipped cats in our history as a species? Like... <laughs>
1: Uh, there's the, there's the great Terry Pratchett line about that, which is like cats were once worshiped as,
0: as gods. They have not forgotten this. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it's- it is. I mean, like, this is, this is so true, you know, like I, you know, Harker sitting next to me right now and I'm like, I'm like, I would do anything. I would do anything for this thing that, you know, has, has no, like un- under, under the auspices of capitalism has no material value for me. You know, he's not a mouser anymore. You know, he's not an Instagram cat influencer. He's just my little buddy.
1: Yeah, I mean I my the grumpy little demon that lives in my house is probably <laughs> curled up in my bed somewhere. Um uh, but this raises the question, right? What
0: is what do you think Blanche is? Ooh, see, this this I think is really fun, right? Because for me, if I kind of continue that line right of Of like mutual aid, a factor of evolution, it, cats as being something that we need to respect, right? We need to give more of ourselves over to the cat. you know, we we have less ability we we have a smaller ability to dictate the terms of its existence, and it has an outsized ability to dictate the terms of ours. Um, And if we look at this movie, Blanche is kind of it is the thing guiding everyone around. it's it's both the object that contains the kind of paranormal forces of the haunting and it's the object that guides these young women into the house it kind of guides them to their doom in the first place what are what are some of your thoughts yeah there's a kind of like there is something kind of like otherworldly
1: what is what what is blanche blanche is both the spirit and the kind of like psychopomp uh there's 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 so many interesting questions because there are so many moments in the film where you go, "That's not a real cat anymore," and then they'll like throw the real cat into shot, shot. Yep. And you go, "There's this kind of weird doubling," uh, because nobody notices, right? Nobody notices this cat. The cat can go anywhere and do anything. Cats are kind of spectral, supernatural. Mm-hmm. Cats are uh, see things that we don't. Um, so yeah, no, no wonder that we've we've. We've almost always associated them with with the uncanny and the
0: supernatural. Yeah, and if we if we like take a step back from the text of this movie too and see it less as a a bunch of young teenage girls getting mulched by a ghost and see it more as kind of kind of a, a young a young self coming into the first understanding of its kind of horrific totality, the the, the kind of spectral nature of the cat is. I don't want to say this. It's the um, it is it is that kind of necessary encounter with this like totally unrecognizable other. Right. It's, it's like this very first and very simplistic encounter with an other that cannot be fully subsumed by the self. You know, the, the cat is at once an actual real little fuzzy white cat and a painting and a bunch of like really surreal artistic effects you know, it's it's both real and it's not real. It's both an object in our world and it's not an object in our world. There's no way to ever fully encapsulize what Blanche is or what Blanche is doing. This is uh, this brings us to the question of
1: reality itself, right? What do we mean by the real and the unreal in the context of this film? Because there's so much of this film which is not real, but there's also so much of this film which is just not real when you look at it on the screen, And I think to really encapsulate the point, what I'm trying to get at here, we have to talk about the watermelon and the watermelon seller.
0: Oh, okay. So what, let's, let's unpack, let's unpack dude who sells watermelons on on the roadside out of a hut, which I really appreciate as, as kind of like a, just one of the great human endeavors, just selling your produce, selling your wares to passersby. Yeah, great, great character in that. But
1: you're also fulfilling the kind of age-old tradition of like the guy who gives the warning, right? That don't yep. don't go near the old Johnson place. <laughs> uh, and they go, oh, no, but let me have one of these. Uh, clearly, like a volleyball that you've painted green. Let me take this away. <laughs> like the the, the, so I, the I... watermelons are not real. They're not. They they are. They're fake and they're obviously fake. And there is this kind of like hyperabundance to them. They are like they're, it's way too big. It it looks very odd, and there it gives it gives. There's a kind of plasticity to the world in which these young women, these girls, kind of live and and move through. Before even before they arrive at the house, right? The world is not real. None of these. Mm-hmm. There's a. There's a. These these are uh, simulacra. These are. Uh, like symbols emptied of content. They're these kind of like postmodern gestures towards something that we might once have remembered, and it's like you take it because it's hospitable, right? It's ho- It's hospitality to take something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I love, I love the obvious not unreality <laughs> of
0: it. What, what about you? What do you think? So I, I, I love. I love the uh, uh, guy who is haggling with me like a seller of melons in the marketplace. I love this dude so much, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's the reading that I would do is looking at him as your your Scooby Doo esque character, the guy that's that's saying like, "Oh, don't go, don't go, find him behind in that old mansion." And I think that in the context of our story, y- you 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 are absolutely nailing the kind of like formalist experimental interpretation of him he's he he is this kind of like like barrier of surreality that these kids are pushed through and i think that in terms of the kind of text of the story he also functions as he's the last he's the last adult warning the kids away he's he's the last kind of supervisor figure the last adult figure that's like, hey, like, don't go any further, because if you go any further, something's going to happen. And if we if we kind of look at like the shift between a juvenile reality, which is once, you you know, the older you start to get, the more your younger years become this hazy, refracted dream and nightmare landscape. You know, memories, memories become worn like stones in the river and this guy, is, this guy is warning them. He's just warning them about that. He's like, you're, you're about to grow into something. And, and becoming adult is horrific and beautiful. You simultaneously realize that like the trite tr- childhood depictions of magic no longer mean anything. But now you are capable of that stuff. You are capable of being the cause of all of the mysticism and wonder in the world. And what is more horrifying than that realization? Well, this is why I want to talk about the skeleton.
1: I love the plastic skeleton uh in that oh boy in the house uh who you can see you can see the strings dancing away yep. he's dancing away in the background uh just busting out some sweet moves uh, if you if you follow the show on uh, on the social media website twitter twitter.com horror vanguard you may have come across uh, perhaps our favoured gif, uh, which is a dance, <laughs> which is a dancing skeleton. We 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 refer to skeletons and skeletons dancing all the time, and to me, there's something so interesting about the body beyond death still being a site of productive activity. Right? That, isn't that the kind of very base model of the haunting? like the ghost is the ghost is the body without the body right but the skeleton is the physical body without the physical body right so there is but still still even in death even as inert matter still dances right even in all of its plasticity and the the fact that it is not uh real even in all of its glorious unreality the skeleton still dances there's a sort of there's a sort of like Beautiful, kind of hopeful, forward-looking philosophy here because it, it 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 means that we associate we associate the 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 the, the skeleton with the memento mori, right? Just uh, I I you know you might have seen it in the walls of a church. You'll see you'll see a a, a memory of death, a skeleton with the words "just as I, just as just as you are, so sh- so just as just as I was." So sh- just as I am, so sh- shall you be. Right? It's a warning. Like everything falls into entropy, but even in its entropy and decay, the skeleton dances still. Um, wh- 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 what do you think?
0: So I love, I love the skeleton in this, and I love the skeleton in this for re- like just so many reasons. It reminds me of uh, Vincent Price's The House on Haunted Hill where where it, it closes with with him killing people using a a large skeleton marionette that looks so much like this one um it's it's this and, and you know the figure of you know like the kind of cheesy clearly puppeteered fake skeleton is is so effective i i think as as a bit of horror we need more skeletons i think i i would like to see skeletons come back um because you're absolutely right like it is yeah, it is something to grapple with because there is a vitality that cannot be extinguished. It's not, you know, so, so much of our existence is concerned with whether or not, you know, like, oh, what's going to happen when I die? You know, like, will will there be a part of me that lives on in some way, whether that's religiously or through a family line? But the the, the real creepy thing about that is you don't have a choice. Part of you will live on like there there is there is no true totalizing death some aspect of what you've done in this world will outlive you and and you owe it to an infinite sea of potential that you'll never be able to see the horizon of to try and make that something good you know like to try and do something materially correct with with the short time frame the unknowable time frame of existence and the memento mori is like like the literal skull staring back at you. It's, it's the skull of that's in your head. You know, like all these wonderful memes about like like, oh my god, there's a skeleton in the room. It's inside you. You know, like that kind of that, that kind of like playful attitude towards death is like it, it is literally the dancing skeleton. You know, like it's it's these things that we'll keep living on that we have absolutely no control over.
1: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Now I know you mentioned this you mentioned this film in our uh 2022 <clears throat> best of the year episode um I know you wanted to to kind of join houseo up
0: to skitterwink Ooh so this I think is I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this part of the discussion right because like haunted house movies there there's so much material discourse to have here um Marink was my pick for the best movie of 2022. Um since recording that episode, it has been picked up for a wide release. So it's going to be released on streaming platforms, which is great to see. That's absolutely fantastic. Um and the whole the whole point of Marink is that it's an exploration of the kind of haunted house from the perspective of not children, but of childhood memory. Yeah. It's 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 this hazy disconnected imperceptible thing. You know, because literal literal children can't can't really make movies. They can't really tell their own story. You know, so it has to be told by older individuals in retrospect and there's always something inconsistent about that. There's always something that changes in the in the translation. And one of the things I find to be really interesting about Hausu Skinamarink Poltergeist Evil Dead is is the kind of site of home ownership as, as a place of unbridled terror and how, how it's gone from like, or how it continues to become how it, how it it shouldn't say gone because this has never not been a factor. It's only getting worse. That home home ownership is just wildly precarious, you know, like, and and even home ownership is a phrase. Like I was talking about my pricey. That's, that's another capitalistic linguistic trick. I don't I don't think I actually know anyone who owns a home. I know a lot of people who uh, pay mortgage to a bank with considerable interest to effectively pseudo rent a home from a bank. You know, like like we are so far from what true housing stability would look like that, of course, the space is going to become hazier, harder to remember and infinitely more terrifying as the system gets worse. Yeah, I mean, I've ri- I've written about kind of Marxist approaches to haunted house films, right? Um, oh, okay, can I can I can I share something? Yeah, can I can I share a fun thing? Fun thing? Fun fun H V thing? Before you and I, we were we were like Twitter acquaintances, you know. But like before you and I had actually met on my first trip to England, I saw you give a give a speech, give a presentation on the haunted house and gothic Marxism. Oh yeah, and I was like, yeah, 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 I. I I was I was at MMU and I was in the audience for that and I was like this guy fucking bangs this guy knows what's up <laughs> this stuff is hot like oh I, I was so stoked by that one but
1: but you, you you're precisely right right why is the ha- why is the house a site of terror right it's because there is something in there there's something in your house and wh- what's in there is not a ghost or a spirit what's in there is the kind of psychic effluvia that comes from the financialization of something that you need to live, right? Means of life becomes a, uh, gets the occult process of turning the thing into the commodity that Marx writes about in the opening of Capital, right? That's, That's what is inside the house. That's what's inside your apartment. That's why, you know, late at night when you hear the knock at the window, Like, your heart kind of jumps in your chest and your stomach drops. Like, it's because, especially now, (laughs) especially since 2008, (laughs) especially since 2016, especially since 2020, especially now, you know, the letter could come through the door one day. and Not because of anything you did, but that it could be taken away from you, right? That's why the house is horrifying. And really, this is a super old tradition, like you pointed out, right? Really, uh, this this idea of like a rich relative that you have to go and see because they might leave you property, is like it's one of the earliest and deepest financializations of things that we need, right? Property is property speculation, the ownership of land all of these things are tied up in the emergence of capitalism like in the very earliest earliest kind of codifications of of social relationships under under capitalism determines things like uh determines things like social relationships full stop right the whole point here is 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 like uh w- marriage is, is this economic exchange, right? Ne- necessarily, because it means you might get property and property equals some sort mm-hmm. of safety. But it
0: is also this phenomenal risk. Oh, ab- absol- absolutely, absolutely. And this is especially the case, and, and there is no way to escape this, right? There's, this is especially the case in in colonized spaces as well as in the spaces controlled by colonizing forces, You know, like, every home built in the United States has to reckon to this. It's either the home of someone who's living on or near their ancestral land who's been displaced by a historic process, by a material process, or it's a home owned by someone who is kind of imbricated in that process, right? Like, someone who descends from this colonial force. And then, you know, you you can go back to, like, places like england it's just as true there a lot of the wealth that creates a lot of you know home ownership there owes that to a a nightmare legacy throughout the world right like poltergeist is such a wonderful exploration is wonderful it's probably the wrong word probably the wrong choice i don't think i'd call poltergeist a wonderful movie it's not the feel-good hit of the year Um, but it is nevertheless an exploration of the fact that homes homes have to be built on the dead Right, every home is built above a burial ground. Whether that burial ground is a literal cemetery, or if it's a, a cultural process of a burial ground, wealth is extracted and land ownership and real estate is is one of capitalism's like yeah. die hard tricks and commodities and this brings up this like this brings up so many things right it brings up
1: uh, the confinement of women to the domestic space it brings up so many things around gender roles around uh, the uh, appropriation of surplus value in all different kinds of labor um but there's, there's there's something in this film that we should talk about which is the fact that there are no men uh like this is this is a film which happens with uh, and this is pres- there are two reasons that i think that this is the case mm-hmm. right firstly because it's a it's a it's a it's a female gothic horror uh, it's a female gothic horror yeah. right the, the it's it's a, it's a film expressly about needing to secure the to secure the domestic space the the home as economic object that gives a kind of security secondly i think this is a film that is in some ways often often a little indirectly uh and often very explicitly dealing with the aftermath of the second world war and specifically uh the 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 war crime
0: the unforgivable use of nuclear weapons on hiroshima and nagasaki and this this like cuz cuz one you're absolutely correct about the gendered reading of this like it's it's telling that the only men that we see in this movie are not so much characters as they are artifacts of the plot, or, or like you, com- comedy bits. Oh, no. He fell down and literally got his butt stuck in a bucket. yep. Mm-hmm. and it's it's to it's to move the plot forward. It's to get our young women into this side of horror, right? they're They're less characters in their own right. and they're more shepherding things forward. And that especially works in the context of like, the kind of like, you know, like young womanhood and juvenility of our characters as they grow and age and kind of encounter the world on its own. Um, but let's let's set that aside a second, because I I have been waiting this entire episode to hear your take on America's use of the atomic bombs at the close of World War II and Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how that relates to Haosu. Well, it, okay, so in Haosu, the on. Aunt- or is supposed to have been
1: married, right? Married to a handsome so- so- yes. soldier. He goes away to war. He never comes back. In fact, mm-hmm. she, uh, she she even says later, there are no men left anymore. There are no young men left. They're all gone. Um, so this is a post-war film, right? This is about the long-running generational traumas of war. The point about uh the point about um the dropping of the atomic bomb, I think is necessarily firstly is necessarily implicit in talking about post-war Japan right Th- that's that is a that's a, that's a tr- that's a trauma that was never visited on britain that's a trauma that was never visited on america it necessarily mm-hmm. has a cultural impact the explicit moment is the moment where uh, gorgeous is looking at herself in the mirror um and the mirror cracks and there's this kind of shifting of perspectives And the two, the aunt and her, kind of swap places until her own face shatters apart, and what's left is this is basically like a burned silhouette. It looks like a radiation burn in the shape of a person. And I'm like, oh yeah, hang on. (laughs) Right, the the an older generation, an entire generation of society in these cities was was wiped out. People were left as literally silhouettes of ash uh and it's so deliberately done that there is this juxtaposition between the youngster and the older person in the family who's lived through this trauma and there is this kind of transference that happens in this really rapid intercutting between the two literally the reflection breaks and there's one subject right and and you know the glass falls away and what you have is this kind of fi- f- silhouette of the sh- of the face that's full of like fire and burning.
0: What do you think? So one of the most important things for me in Haosu is the fact that how is the fire depicted? Because it's one of our final scenes is that um, one of our final scenes is our, 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 you know, our final girl, right. Who's, who's now kind of like, you, you can read this a lot of ways. I re- I read this as she's kind of internalized all of her friends and and the figure of her aunt, right? She's she's grown into something new. Uh, the the stepmother that she ran away from in the beginning uh, shows up at the house and she goes to shake hands and the stepmother is just kind of instantly immolated in this fire and and just is completely atomized by it. And it's not it's not a campfire. It's not it's not the fire you see when wood burns. It's it's something much more chemical. It's something much more atomic. It's something much harder to read and look at. It's it's visually inconsistent. And like, like it, it's atomic fire, you know, like they're being atomized. Right. And like all the girls in this movie, too, they're being ground up and chewed apart by this house. They're being torn to pieces. They're also being atomized. Like it is it is a very apt and powerful read. And the movie like is you're, you're absolutely right. It's openly in conversation with this. It's openly talking about the close of World War Two and, and the immediate societal aftermath of that. Yeah. Like and 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 the shift from kind of older social
1: relations into Japan as the kind of site of experimentation for new generations of capitalism. And I think that directly ties into the cinematic language of advertising that Obiashi is using in the film itself.
0: Ooh, ooh, okay. I really like that. I really like that. There's like oh my god oh go on, a, go, on a, go on any 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 final
1: any final thoughts we've been going just over an hour now
0: I, how how is it another one of those movies where there's I just feel like there's so much to talk about here and there's so many ways to approach it and and I think part of that owes to the experimental nature of the film right the fact that it's not the fact that it, I mean in many ways you know like part of a good experimental film is choosing what you will experiment with. It's being it's being deliberate and agential with your experimentations, just just as you would with science, right? You know you can't just test all of your variables randomly; otherwise, you'll make a mess. Uh, and in this film, like a lot of the plot is very traditional. There's a lot of very traditional dialogue for the haunted house horror movie setup, um, but like the visuals are just like they're they're inviting you into this chaotic and uncertain space and what what i guess is just more about being alive than being invited into something chaotic and uncertain and un- un- chaotic and uncertain that you yourself did not choose <laughs> yeah milton's house everyone <laughs> how about you any any closing closing paradise housed thoughts uh
1: it's a great movie it's it's a it's a super it, i don't know is it a great movie i don't know it's a very interesting movie it's, and it's a really it's really it's really it's occasionally very funny it's occasionally really silly um and it's it like endlessly inventive with super limited resources um it is it it doesn't work in all the most interesting ways and you, you should totally watch it oh i watched this as a 2 hour a 2 hour cut on archive.org uh, which included like 20 minutes of like horror movie previews beforehand, which added a lot to the experience.
0: Well, thank you everyone for joining us for the second horror Vanguard episode of 2023. Uh, we have I guess something of an unofficial theme going on this month that we uh, can't wait to share you with the next movie we're doing. Uh, there's no way there's no way any of you saw this one coming. I hope you like goo. I hope you like mushrooms. I hope you like Italians. And I hope you like trade unionism. Because <laughs> uh, we're going to have a lot of fun on this next one. Uh, un- until then, I uh, will see you all in the Horror Vanguard uh, Haunted uh, Cat Adoption Center, where you can pick up your own uh, haunted ghost cat. Boom. There we go. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.